0: The Way BK Podcast is dedicated to pursuing and promoting a true understanding of Jesus Christ and the transformation He provides for all who submit to Him to live in a way that is pleasing to God as revealed in the Bible. Let's join our hosts as they discuss The Way.
1: I said a lot about the intro, but I didn't give you a chance, Ben. There might be some things you want to jump in and add there before we get into the text. Um, I don't think
0: so. I think you nailed it. I think it's really great. And especially the setup um, into what we're going to talk about here, um, about how Paul viewed the gospel. And he really personalized. He does the interesting thing. At the end of one, he kind of personalized it. And then in the beginning of chapter two, he globalizes it and shows us how the gospel has got to be the thing that shapes us. And none of the false teachings or uh, false ideas or false motives that he's talked about earlier in the, in the letter. Amen. Yeah. Um, so I think it'd be good if we read verses 12 to 17, um, as Paul kind of, this is one of, I'm trying to think of other ones, Philippians three, he kind of does this. Obviously there's some sections in acts where he talks about his own story. Um, I'm trying to think there's not a lot of other passages where he really gets personal like this. He gets personal about, in general about what God's done for him or about his relationship with people. But this is one where he's really just going to take a minute to talk about what God has done for him. I'm probably forgetting some other texts like that, but this is a pretty special and important text. I think for us to understand how Paul thought about what the gospel meant to him and how really all of us should think about what the gospel means to us. Amen. Amen. Um, you want to read the, for the first round, I'll read the next round, but you want sure. to read the 12 to 17?
1: Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read down through verse 17. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. This is what it says. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love, which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, immortal, invisible, eternal, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.
0: There are at least two things that stand out to me, big picture in this section. You may see some other things too, and I'll kind of throw these out and, and anybody who sees similar things can kind of comment in the in the chat and we'll try to highlight those. Um, but it seems to me there's two key thoughts on Paul's mind when he thinks about the gospel. Number one, he thinks about his own um, status, I guess. He talks a lot about who he was before and what became of him because of the gospel. And there's a lot of different descriptions that he uses to talk about who he was before. And the other thing is he talks about how the gospel is um, an expression of, or, or maybe I should say the gospel expresses a variety of attributes of God. Uh, of Christ. And those are kind of the two big things that the gospel teaches is things about God, what he's about, who he is, how he thinks about us, interacts with us. And then it teaches us things about ourselves, who I am apart from God, who I am because of God. Um, And with those, those two categories, and like I said, people can go and start looking over the text and feel free to jump on with the, with the chat. If any of you see some things related to what Paul says about himself and what the gospel showed him about who he was before and what he could become. Uh, And then of course, what the gospel shows about the nature and character of God. The way he starts this section before he talks about all those things is uh, with gratitude. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. He says at the end, he has that little praise section in verse 17 and then the ending. Amen. It's almost like verses 12 through 17 are a little, prayer. This is what I'm thankful for. This is what I give thanks for. And then he rattles off the things that God's done for him and the things that God, God is, and God has demonstrated about his own character. And I think that's so important. And maybe when we think about the the bigger context of false teaching and false doctrine and dealing with all that, um, maybe one of the big root causes of either promoting or being drawn into false doctrine is not being grateful it's not thinking that you have enough. It's thinking that you need something else, or you deserve something else that God owes you, or whatever. Um, Romans chapter one kind of has the opposite emphasis here. I mean, it's the same issue of gratitude, but in Romans chapter one, when Paul talked about all the evil that has cropped up in the world for ever since we've been on planet earth, um, the reason that he gave is that people did not honor God, and they were not thankful. It's so important to take time to really be grateful and to really reflect on why we're grateful about who God is and what he's done for us. If we're not that, that's the path toward evil, toward sin, toward darkness, toward death. But Gratitude is a really essential part of the path toward life. So I don't know. You may want to say some more things about the gratitude or start diving into those two categories, or I may be missing some other key parts about this, uh, paragraph but i think it's important for us to note that that emphasis on gratitude right off the bat, gratitude toward god
1: yeah i also just love the way he describes and this is really the end of verse 11 um but like his segue into this section of uh just the way he describes uh this um gospel according to the glorious gospel of the blessed god with which i've been entrusted i mean that that to me is a really kind of a beautiful picture of what he's describing Uh, the gospel is good news but it's more than that it's a glorious good news and and really at the root of this good news if you were going to summarize the good news in a word it's about the it's about god it's about the blessed god it's about um, the the wonderful god who who has um who has done wonderful things for his people and so yeah i mean i think what you're saying is absolutely right if my response to that is, is not gratitude, then, uh, man, what's wrong with me? Like, I'm, I'm totally, totally misunderstanding or misapplying or misinterpreting uh, the gospel of God.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which, uh, which is why, you know, this, um, this question, so let's just go ahead and get into that. I think this is worth us. Maybe we'll talk about this first, then we'll come back and talk about what Paul says about himself. But I don't know. I'll just kind of rattle off some, help me see the ones that I miss here. Um, But then maybe we can talk about ones that really stand out here about what, what the gospel revealed to Paul about the Lord. Verse 12, the Lord strengthened him. So God um, is powerful and is gracious enough to share his power, which is a really unique thing. There are a lot of people who are gracious But they don't have much power matter of fact those usually tend to be the people that are most gracious they don't have much power economic power political power social power whatever Um, and they tend to be really gracious because they know what it's like to be powerless so they want to help others there are some people who are powerful but they're not really interested in sharing their power they want to keep it god is powerful and he shares his power with others he strengthens Mm -hmm. people Uh, god trusts people he considered paul faithful verse 12. Uh, god has mission things he's trying to accomplish he put paul into service Obviously, to some extent, these things are unique to Paul as an apostle, right? Not all of us had Jesus appear to us on the road to Damascus and call us to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but there's a version of a lot of these things that apply to all people who, right. have, who believe the gospel, who live the gospel. So, okay, so God shares his power. God trusts and entrusts um, duties to people. God has mission and purpose. He put Paul into service. Um, God is merciful. The end of verse 13, Paul says, yet I was shown mercy. So, God is merciful. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord, not only um, is God uh, have pity or is merciful, but He also extends kind acts of grace toward people, especially people who don't deserve it. Um, God is trustworthy. Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement, which implies that God said it. So, we can trust Him. God is trustworthy, Um, the Lord is trustworthy. Uh, The Lord is a savior. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Uh, He mentions mercy once again in verse 16. And then he talks about patience in verse 16 as well. Our God is a God of patience rather than blowing us all off the face of the earth for our sin. He demonstrates patience toward all. um, So they may be saved and um, he offers life. He is the source of life verse 16. And then of course there's that great little explosion in verse 17 of He's eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God who deserves all honor and glory. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. There's going to be a similar kind of praise at the end of the book in chapter six, talking about Jesus as the the great sovereign overall. Anyway, I mean, I'm just kind of rattling those off. I don't know which of those really stand out to you or speak to you or impress you whenever you think about um, what the gospel showed Paul about the nature of the Lord.
1: Well, so one thing that comes to mind as I read this is uh, that a lot of people have a view of God as if God is always angry and always looking to like God. Almost the view is almost like Jesus came here to kill and destroy. Like you know, the reason Jesus came down is so that He could show us how terrible we are and so that He could punish us and destroy us. Um, and actually, like Paul says, no. Uh, Christ came to save sinners. So that's the reason why he came, was he came into the world to, to save people. Um, I think that's important for us to, to just kind of uh, meditate on and marinate on and just reflect on that, that, that really, from the beginning, God has, this, has, has been a good God who desires to do good to his people um and and the way we know that is true is that christ came into the world um and actually he, he he suffered a lot of bad so that he could do good so that he could ultimately bring about uh the salvation of of sinners so that that's one thing that that just kind of uh popped out uh, another one that that stood out to me as i was reading this was um that the the patience of christ you know i normally think about patience in kind of a passive sense is like Patience is just kind of putting up with bad things that are happening. Um, but what I love about this is the patience of Christ is active, not passive. That is, like, he demonstrates his patience. How? By coming into the world to save sinners. Um, and, and so God is not, uh, is not a God who's waiting around um, and just putting up with us. He's a God who actually, like, seeks to initiate um, salvation six, seeks to initiate transformation in our lives. Even when we're maybe completely apathetic to it or completely um, hostile to such a thing, the Lord is actively seeking to, to show his goodness, his love, his, his kindness to us.
0: Yeah, no, that's an awesome point. Some of this circled back, you mentioned this um, earlier, verse five, whenever he says that the aim of our instruction is love, from a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. Uh, in some ways, this is a pretty good summation of what the instruction fundamentally is. The instruction is the God, the good news. And the good news is a revelation of the nature of God through Jesus. Whenever Jesus came, that's what he said. He said, I came to show you the Father. That's, what I, that's my whole deal. And that's how you're going to be saved from your sin. And that's how you're going to have eternal life. That's how I'm going to accomplish all these things. Whenever we're having a hard time with being loving people who have a purely devoted commitment to God, who have a a clean conscience, a clear conscience, understanding what's right and wrong before God, who have a real genuine sincere faith. Whenever I feel that I'm struggling in those areas and I'm not loving God all that much or very well, not loving others all that much or very well, probably I haven't, I've forgotten or I've never fully embraced some of these things that Paul highlights That the gospel reveals, we love because He first loved us. Maybe put another way, we show mercy to others because God has shown us mercy. We proactively engage in situations that will require extreme patience, perfect patience. We do that with others because God's done that with us. Right. Um, You know, we love God and trust God because of how much he's loved us and how he's shown us such an amazing gift to send Jesus to bring us salvation. We love the lost and we reach out to the lost with the gospel because Jesus came to the world to save sinners. This is the instruction fundamentally. Now he's going to get in all kinds of other things about prayer and um, men and women and leadership in the church and all kinds of stuff. But fundamentally the instruction that first Timothy one five talks about, I think it could be said is this gospel that Paul is, uh, sort of overviewing in this little paragraph here. And this is the key to the kind of love that God expects us of. It starts with having a clear conception of what God is about and who he really is. He's a guy who has extremely high standards. He couldn't just let sin go. He couldn't pretend like it wasn't a real thing. But to your point, he also couldn't let us go. He couldn't pretend like we weren't, un- we weren't important to him. He desperately has done everything that he could to draw the lost back to himself and to show us what he's about and who he is so that we can be saved from sin and death. And that's the thing that drives our love for him and our love for others. So really a lot of this, I think, ties right back to that really important verse in uh, chapter one, verse five.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And it's interesting to see Paul kind of start the letter this way. Um, You know, I almost, I almost would expect uh, Paul to say, okay, well, so I put you here to so that you can teach people not to teach strange doctrines so here's a bunch of doctrines that you need to make sure and teach and make sure they don't deviate from this and 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 this this. make sure these are, are are these right doctrines are the ones being taught Interesting to me that Paul doesn't really start the letter that way. Now, in the letter, he's going to do a lot of that. He's going to give a lot of things about like, hey, this is what you need to teach. This is what you need to instruct on. Make sure you don't deviate from this. Make sure things are done this way. Like he's going to do a lot of that in the letter. So it's not as if uh, rules or laws are unimportant to God um, or to Paul. They, They certainly are. It is interesting to me, though, that he starts with kind of rooting Timothy in the gospel. And just kind of immersing him in, in, in the goodness of God and what, the, what God has done for him and why that's so important for, uh, for Timothy as well. I just find that instructive and helpful and, uh, and, and impactful, the way Paul kind of begins the letter with such an emphasis on, on the goodness of the gospel. And maybe that's because rules in and of themselves uh, do not, do not uh, save. In fact, he says he already said in this letter, right? That, uh, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the rebellious. R- rules just reveal how sinful we've been. Uh, the other thing is, though, that the law cannot transform in and of itself. Rules don't transform in and of itself. Only the gospel can completely change a person. And I think that's what you're speaking about here, is that when we start to see the goodness of God as he's revealed in the gospel, it begins to have a huge impact on me. And it begins to change me if I I have a heart to to see it and to appreciate it.
0: That is a great point. And we need to keep this really embedded in our minds because we keep going through the letter. He's going to keep coming back to the gospel as his basis for all sorts of instructions that on the surface, if you just read the rules, you're like, this sounds like just annoying or nitpicky or why should I care about this? But he's going to attach it to the gospel to show this is the foundation for everything, which is what we do in every arena of life. I mean, think, for us, wearing seat seatbelts is just a standard thing. You should wear a seat belt when you drive. Well, that wasn't true just a generation ago. But then all of a sudden, it was like, hey, wait, people are dying because cars are faster and wrecks are more, whatever. And so we need to have some sort of safety protection. And the thing that convinces people is not just, here's the rule. The thing that convinces people is, here's what happens if you don't wear a seatbelt. Same thing with drunk driving. Why should, I mean, you shouldn't get drunk anyways if you follow the Lord, but let's just pretend somebody doesn't care about all that stuff. And, you know, why? who cares if I'm drunk while I'm drunk? Well, here's the statistics for what happens. You'll kill somebody or you'll kill yourself. Well, there's this underlying thing that we value, the preservation of human life. Therefore, the rule makes sense because it's attached to that underlying value. Paul says, here's the underlying value. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Therefore, he's going to get in all this other stuff but but what that also uh, highlights is not only here's some things about the character of God but here's what it means for you and me. And Paul does a good bit here highlighting here's what the gospel has meant to me. Here's what here's how the gospel has impacted my life. Sure it's revealed a lot of amazing things about God but here's what that means for me. So of the kind of personal um, I don't know right word, personal statements personal uh, ways that Paul personalizes the gospel which ones really speak to you and stand out to you the most as far as Paul's statements here that highlight what the gospel meant to him. I know we got a couple of comments here that um, we should come back to here in a second, but if you want to kick us off and I'll read the comments here in a second, but what, what, what jumps out at you?
1: Yeah. um, Well, one thing that gets me a little bit here or or surprises me a little bit here is that the way Paul speaks about it, he was not chosen because of his Jewishness, he was not chosen because of his, like, uh, you know, his excellence in, uh, in his studies or his, like, you know, scholarship. He was not chosen because of his, like, influence or, or any of those things. According to this text, primarily, he was chosen um, because he was a formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent, violent aggressor. Um, you know, it, it, it's just interesting to me that um, Paul was not shown mercy because of his own giftedness or because of his goodness, but ultimately because of God's goodness and mercy. And an understanding of that completely transformed the way Paul thought about his ministry, what God had entrusted him with uh, and to, and to serve him. Um, because, you know, if, if I view ministry, as, uh, as something that you know I deserve and I've achieved and I've, uh, I've you know, accomplished because of my own goodness or my own giftedness, it's gonna affect the way I serve and the way I minister. I'm gonna put people down because I'm gonna show them how much better I am than them. But I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, be often harsh with people because they haven't arrived at what I may think I have become. Uh, there are lots of things that, that, that I'm gonna do which, are, which are, are not gonna be in step with the gospel because I have a, a higher view of myself than I ought to. I, one of the things I think Paul's really trying to emphasize is, is that ultimately the gospel call is not given to people who deserve it, but to people who, who are undeserving of it. And Paul himself is kind of in many ways the epitome of that as a blasphemer, as a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Now, why would God do it that way? Well, he's doing that it that way so that the glory goes to God so that we recognize um, that it's not because of our giftedness, our goodness, but because of God's goodness and God's mercy uh, that we've been put into service. Uh, and I think I, I think that's pretty powerful. I think Brian may have said something along that line. I was reading his comment there um, that he said something along those lines there, too.
0: Yeah, I'll go ahead and read that one first. Uh, he and Diana both had comments that kind of track what you're saying and, and really summarize the section well. But I'll read Brian's first since you just mentioned it. Um, Brian said, Paul has to be so humble and grateful. The very reason he's saying God chose him is, all caps, because he was the worst or the chief of sinners, persecutor of the church, in which shows God's glory and would convince all who knew Paul before his change. And uh, then Brian references the blind man from John 9, who Jesus said, it wasn't, in that case, it wasn't because of sin in that miracle, but it was to show the glory of God. Well, Paul, the sinner, God chose one of the most, violent, aggressive, anti-Christian, anti-Christ figures that we have in the New Testament. That's who God chose and said, hey, come follow me. And I'm going to use you as an example of my, my perfect patience. Um, Diana has a similar comment here uh, that this paragraph shows how Paul reviled Christ, that he was the worst of sinners, and that Paul became an example of true repentance through the gospel. And I think this is a key point, too, that Paul does speak to his own repentance She says a changed mind, a changed heart, and changed behavior, and that's exactly right. Um, And a really important thing for us to note, that part of Paul's story is that he responded properly to the gospel. That's the problem with the false teachers. Verses 1 through 11, it's a bunch of people who weren't responding properly to the gospel. Once Paul understood the true gospel, he says there in verse 13 that he was shown mercy even though he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Any one of those three statements, I mean, that's like his, his uh, you know, on his LinkedIn page, persecutor, violent aggressor, blasphemer, any of those three by itself would be enough to be like, oof, that's as bad as it gets. But he lists all three, I think, trying to show us I was totally not, I was totally out on Christ. I was totally anti Christ. And yet I was shown mercy. And he highlights this, he says, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I think here he's making a counter. where he's like, look, we don't have to be perfect. That's not the deal. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. But the problem is some of these fools out here who are stubbornly refusing the gospel, who know what it's about, and they're not embracing it, they're causing trouble. And we're going to see at the end of chapter one, he's going to warn about how they, they're going to be in trouble because of that. But the overwhelming point, in spite of all that emphasis on Paul's repentance, not in spite of it, but besides that, um, is exactly, I think, your point. That he's so almost over the top about how bad he was and how big the change was. I think when we read it, we think that. Chief of sinners? Come on, Paul. Even the fact that he says, uh, let's see, where is that? The verse 16, 15. Yeah, 15. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, among whom not I was foremost, I was chief. Mm -hmm. I am chief. I am. First in line of all the sinners. I'm the first one in line. Let me talking about Paul. You've been preaching the gospel. You've been living a holy life. You repented, man. For Paul, there was a very real sense in which he left that identity behind. He certainly wasn't a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor anymore. Right. But he never forgot. This is who I am. I right. was, I mean, it's what the Israelites were supposed to remember every time they took the Passover. I, we were slaves, you know, that's who we are but God liberated us and made us something different. It's so important for us to understand that and to appreciate who we've been and how we really still carry that with us. We shouldn't like pretend like we're not sinners anymore. We are sinners saved by grace and saints by the grace of God, but we are sinners. Um, and it's only by God's grace that we have anything else.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think that's really humbling it's also really empowering if you think about it, because when you look at this text and you read what Paul says here, I mean, basically what he says is that, um, God, what, what Christ Jesus can do, what God is doing through Christ Jesus is he can take somebody who's completely unfaithful and he can turn them into a faithful servant who works alongside him for his glory. Um, I love that. I think that's a really beautiful thing here. I mean, here's a man who Paul is really emphasizing uh is completely unfaithful to God in every way, who God then entrusts or um or or is faithful towards, entrusts to serve. Um, So that giving him an opportunity to become faithful, and and that's where we're seeing too that um, not not only does God's grace humble us before him and help us to see ourselves as we truly are, which then leads us to love others the same and and see others as important as, as ourselves, but it also empowers us to see that actually, you know what, in spite of who I have been and in spite of who I am and what I have done, Um, You know what? The Lord could still strengthen me. The Lord could still uh, consider me faithful. The Lord could still put me into service. The Lord could still use me for good, for his glory and for his honor, if I will humble myself before him. The fact that Paul is willing to see himself as he truly was, a sinner condemned apart from God's grace and power, is I think what, uh, what allows God to use him as an instrument to strengthen him and to, and, and, and to put him into service. And the same is true for us. You know, it's a real danger for me if I think um, that, I am, that I am everything that I, I, I need to be, that I'm, a, I'm already strong. And so I should already be serving. I think that's a real warning sign. We ought to recognize ourselves as weak without the strength of Christ. We ought to recognize ourselves as sinners apart from the grace of God. Um, and whatever I am, then it's only, as Paul will say in a similar passage in 1 Corinthians, um, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I I, I am where I am today, and I am serving and I, I am ministering today because of what the Lord has done in me and how, how he entrusted me when I was untrustworthy and how he taught me how to be a trustworthy servant and gave me opportunities to to be entrusted to serve him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I don't really have very much more to say. I think it's worth, there's this almost like, I don't know if it should have parenthesis around it, but it's almost like verses 18 to 20 are a little parenthetical. That I think it works in this context because there's one key element here. Paul says the reason why he, the, the problem basically before was his unbelief. And the thing that he found in Christ Jesus, verse 14 was belief faith yeah. that he found in Christ. Well, in verses 18 through 20, he comes to Timothy in particular, and he says, hey, man, um, I'm entrusting you in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight. We don't know what those prophecies were. There's no real record. Something was special about Timothy. I think that's, that's good enough. We, we can know that um, without all the details, maybe necessarily. Um, but, but he says, I want you to fight the good fight. Well, what fight? Verse 19, keeping faith. And a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymeneus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul uses this language of handing people over to Satan to talk about Christians, actually, Christians who reject the faith. They they say they're Christians, in other words, but they're not really living in accordance with the gospel. Um, So at least the way I I read this is there were these couple of bad influences. I don't know if they were the the ringleaders of the group of false teachers that he mentions earlier in chapter one, or if they were just a couple of examples that maybe Timothy would have known personally. I don't know. Whatever it was, Paul was extremely concerned about these kinds of individuals and the influence they could have on somebody like Timothy. And the key thing that he keeps on bringing up, I mean, verse 19 in particular, uh, well, yeah, mostly verse 19, I guess it is, is the issue of faith which we've talked about before in various discussions. I think it's worth bringing up again. When we talk about faith, there's an element of just what you think, what you believe about God on a sort of intellectual level. But that also is supposed to manifest into some sort of behavior, but not just like occasional behavior, but a devotion, a loyalty. The idea of being faithful, verse 12, God considered me faithful. It's the same same word, same idea. Uh, that you got there faithful the end of verse 13 would be not faithful or not not a faith person verse 14 I found faith in Christ and then in verse 19 here he's calling on Timothy basically to say hey you stay grounded in what we believe about who God is and what that means to us because of the gospel don't get caught up in these people who are rejecting that and are promoting other ideologies that are different from or opposed to the gospel. You've got to hold firmly to the faith. God's been faithful to us. Now we've got to be faithful to him. So I think that's just a really important thing that Paul's thing, his problem before was a lack of faith. The thing that was allowing God, in other words, was opening Paul up so that God could do something was because of faith. And Paul's calling on Timothy, you make sure to hold on to that. And that's an important exhortation to us. We're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about a commitment and a loyalty to who God is and what he's about.
1: Yeah, I think you're right on. And just to kind of stress what you're saying there um, uh, on a, in a technical way, um, if you think about it, I think you may have already said this, that the word for faith and believe is the same word as well as the word for faith and faithful. So understanding that if you look at verses 12 through 17, I mean, the word faithful or faith is in almost every verse there. Um, so that's a huge, there's a huge emphasis put on what God is doing in us and what the gospel is supposed to produce. The effect of the gospel is it's supposed to make us faithful. Just as the Lord has been faithful to us, it's supposed to produce in us a faithfulness in return towards him. Past, if we look at our past, we haven't had it. We've been unfaithful. Um, but God actually takes people and he washes them and he cleanses them and he saves them. And then he considers them faithful and he entrusts them with, he entrusts them with work and ministry so that they have an opportunity to prove themselves uh, faithful to him. And so, I mean, yeah, I think there's no, no doubt that um, this is going to be a big deal. It's already been a huge emphasis throughout chapter one. And the reason for that really comes in, in verses 18 through 20. Um, you know, it's possible to shipwreck your faith. Yeah, it's pop- it's possible uh, to know the gospel and yet um, to end up losing your faith and losing your your good conscience as well to reject that um, and end up losing together that relationship that you have with the Lord. And he gives these two examples of it, which, um, you know, my my question about that is, as you kind of alluded to. Are these guys that are actually, like, in the audience? Are these guys actually there in Ephesus like when, uh, when Timothy reads this letter that Paul wrote him out loud? I mean, or, uh, or whatever. I mean, it seems like they're definitely part of the trouble uh, that's coming up there. So, wow. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's right.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to put a button on this before me, I want us to read the first paragraph because of chapter two, because I think mean it really kind of lines up with this stuff a lot and, and is, is valuable and, and kind of gives us a little bit of like a practical um, step forward with a lot of the things we've been talking about. Like you pointed out, these guys and others like them shipwreck their faith. And we know what happens when you shipwreck. Uh, I mean, I think I think. The analogy Paul's using is faith is like your transportation. It's what takes you through life. And everybody is being transported on something. Everybody believes something and follows after something. And that's the, the boat that they're floating on throughout life and through the storms of life. The problem is if uh, you mess up your boat, you're going to get shipwrecked. Or if you're not uh, you know, conducting your ship in the right way, you're going to get wrecked. Verse 16, the opposite is those who do believe, those who get on the right boat on the Jesus boat, on the gospel boat, those who believe have eternal life. The contrast is people who get drowned at sea because they don't hold faithfully to the gospel versus those who end up in the safe harbor on that paradise island we all want to end up on with God himself. What are you going to do about it? That's kind of Paul's challenge here. Yeah. Anything else you got from, uh, from chapter one before we read this uh, first section of chapter two?
1: Yeah, I'll just add one more thought that stood out to me as we were reading this, uh, as I was reading through this today, Um, and that is that um, whenever, sometimes, like, we think about the gospel, we're reflecting on the gospel, we're studying the gospel, and we say, wow, this is amazing, this is beautiful, Um, but it stays, like, almost like a I don't know. It stays almost like an intellectual, like appreciation. It doesn't go further than that. One of the things that hits me here is that as Paul is thinking about and writing about and speaking about the gospel, it eventually leads him into praise. Um, in verse 17, he, it's like this spontaneous adoration just comes out of him. Now to the King, immortal, invisible, uh, eternal, the only God be the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Which, which just made me think about if the gospel is really having its, its real and true effect in me, it's going to lead me not just to uh, appreciate this in some sort of intellectual way, but to appreciate this with my whole being. Uh, it's going to lead me into pure adoration toward God as I think about what the Lord has done for me, what he, what he did, and, and who I was and who I am in spite, of, in spite of how gracious and how good and how kind he's been to me. Um, and then as Diana mentioned in the comments, I think um, my other thought related to that was that ultimately... Uh, when we recognize the sin in us, uh, she said it this way, Paul could recognize the sin in him and how God continually worked in his life. He was not handing out cards saying that he was the great apostle. This allowed him to see others as himself and as Christ does. And I was just thinking about this as it relates to us. It's not until I appreciate Christ's perfect patience and, and his goodness, and his love and mercy toward me um, it's not until I truly appreciate that that I'll be motivated to have that same kind of patience, love, and grace towards others in my ministry once that once the gospel takes deep hold in my life, I can't help but extend that same grace and love and mercy towards others as well absolutely yeah that's right that's right
0: and that issue of um, Having the gospel drive us toward praise, I think, really lines up with this first part of chapter two. So we'll read it. We may not get into every detail today, and we may end up coming back to this a little bit next time, but let's read verses one to seven. I'll read it, and then if you want to just kind of kick us off with what stands out to you, right after this great talk about faith in the gospel and what that should mean, what should that lead us to? Chapter two, verse one. First of all, then, which is so funny, Paul's written several <laughs> paragraphs. He's like, all right, now it's time to start. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, so first of all, Paul gets into actually some instructions here. Uh, what, What jumps out at you here?
1: Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is only the gospel could produce this kind of attitude towards other people particularly as I think about it, like from Paul's perspective, toward kings, for example, uh, and all who are in authority. Because th- if you think about it from Paul's perspective, when he's talking about kings and all who are in authority, he has experience with some of those people. Um, and actually it's not good experiences for the most part. It's primarily like bad experiences where they've done terrible things, unjust, unfair things to him um, for the sake of his faith. So... so why on earth then would Paul be urging people to pray for these people Um, and for all men? I mean, that would include not, if he says all men here, it's not just people in power. It's also like all the people that were running him out of towns, the, the towns he got, the people who were throwing stones at him, the people who were doing, you know, what could produce that? Well, it, again, it's, it's an appreciation for what, for the grace that he has received, which then now produces in me The same desire that God has—that all men would be saved, that all men would come to the knowledge of truth—if God would save even me, the chief of sinners—and I think that's the way we should think about it—we shouldn't think of it. Oh well, Paul was just the worst guy. I had to read the gospel and say, "Hey, I am the chief of sinners. I am the first of sinners." That way, Paul,
0: that top spot—you don't get to hold that, man.
1: Right, right. If if I see myself that way, and I see what God has, the extent to which God has shown me grace, it'll produce that same sort of grace towards others which is going to take me to my knees in prayer for all men. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and that's a big one. I mean, you mentioned earlier that the gospel should drive us to praise and here the, the first of all that Paul says, as far as instruction is, I want you guys to be praying. Yeah. Brian made a good observation that in order for us to stay faithful, which is a big point of emphasis, as we said, at the end of chapter one, all this talk about the gospel, you better respond to it appropriately. You need to be loyal to God. You need to believe in God. Um, you know, Brian makes a good observation that reading and rereading the gospel is really crucial. You know, mm-hmm. that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John exist. That's mm-hmm. why Paul wrote, wrote letters and John wrote letters. That's why we've got the Old Testament, all that stuff. Um, and Paul would say a lot of things about that. He'll say it later in First Timothy. He's going to say it a lot more in 2 Timothy. It's a big point of emphasis. You've got to be reading the gospel. It is interesting that the first thing Paul says, though, is if you really want to embed this stuff in your heart, and have it grow into something in your life. You need to be prayerful. Mm. You'd be praying, giving thanks, just like I'm giving thanks. He talks about um, that's right there in that list there in verse, uh, verse one. Um, It may be that he's talking about three different categories of prayer. I don't know if you have some thoughts about this, but it may be that prayers would be uh, speaking about uh, praise and adoration and confession, things that you're saying to God, just things that you say. Petitions are requests. Uh, that you're making maybe on your own behalf maybe on behalf of someone else intercessions please do this for so and so or such and such and then thanksgiving's obviously giving thanks and um, that's both that that's how, it's a gospel activity and it's one of the things that brings the gospel into our hearts and makes it play out in our lives i think just as much as anything because praying in this way confessing your sins talking to god about great he is that kind of stuff entreaties or requests, asking God for stuff that you need, asking for God's stuff on behalf of your neighbors and friends, your nation, whatever, your enemies, all that stuff, and giving thanks to God. It's a way of connecting you more deeply to God himself and of helping you see how God connects to the people around you. To your point about praying for kings and people in authority and all that kind of stuff, it's not just like, oh, I want their life to be nice. You can see in verses three and four that the thing that this is all about is the gospel. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God. Well, why? Well, because he's our savior and he desires that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what our prayer should be about because we want everybody to believe. We want everybody to have this faith. We want everybody to be faithful and loyal to God so that we all can be what God wants us to be. That's the real goal and the mission and the, uh, the vision that Paul has here of uh, this attitude toward others
1: exhibited through prayer. Yeah. Amen. Um, man, I was just thinking about just thinking about like how relevant this is for us right now yeah. in the time, uh, that we are living in, especially as we lead up to like election season and all that. Um, maybe just a couple exhortations. One is r- regardless of who wins the election, this command is still true for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter who's in power. We, we might say, well, our, our, our country is different because, we elect our leaders or whatever, well, whoever is put in authority, um, we pray for them, uh, regardless of what party they're from or whatever. And we pray for them, ultimately, that they might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, We pray for people, not just uh, to, uh, to, to to have health and prosperity, but we pray for them also, that they might find repentance, that they might come to salvation, that they might come to know the truth. This is ultimately what what the Lord desires. And I just think that's such a different spirit from what you see in the world right now. I mean, I I know when the president got sick recently, there's a lot of people um, who are wishing ill upon him and wishing uh, destruction for them. And and that should never be the case for us as the people of God. I I loved uh, a brother posted this and I thought this was really really helpful. He 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 said Nebuchadnezzar demolished the temple, destroyed his homeland, took him prisoner and threw his friends in the fire. And when Daniel heard something bad was coming upon him, that being Nebuchadnezzar, he responded with this. He said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. That's amazing kindness, amazing forgiveness, amazing humility. Um, and that's the kind of person we are called to be. Uh, when we see the extent to which God has been kind to us, the extent to which God has forgiven us, the extent to which God has loved us, then that same sort of extreme love, extreme grace, extreme mercy is demonstrated in the ways that we pray for other people around us and in the ways that we love and serve the people around us who God has also created in his image, um, no matter what they've done to us. Yeah.
0: And I think... um... The reason why Paul says this, and so matter of fact, it's interesting he doesn't feel the need to make the case for praying for Caesar or the regional leaders that were trash. I mean, you think Pilate was the only regional leader in the right. Roman government who was a scoundrel? No. Right. How about Herod? Right. And I mean, just everywhere. I mean, that was in like the, the good place where the Jews were. They were I mean, even worse in other places, you know. He doesn't even feel the need to make the case for it. He doesn't have to defend it. You know, and I think part of the reason is because for Paul, it was obvious, hey, look, we expect all of them in the world to be kind of bad or really bad. Right. But we also know that's not really our mission. That's not really our fight. Our mission is the gospel. He, It's interesting. this section begins and ends with Paul very personally talking in chapter one and verse 12. I thank God for he's put me in service. Well, in chapter two and verse seven, he ends with this is what I was appointed for. I was appointed to be a preacher of the gospel to all the nations. And if we would stay, if we would let the gospel not only give us faith, not only drive us to prayer, not only drive us to be empathetic and caring for others, but if we would let it dictate the mission and purpose of our lives, then a lot of the other stuff is just, it's not going to be easy, but it is going to make sense. And it's going to be a little bit more natural. Yeah, I should pray for them. I mean, whether or not they respond to the gospel, I want to pray for them so that We'll be able to live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity so that we can keep about our mission here on the earth of bringing people to the kingdom of Christ. That's what this whole thing's about anyways. That's what the gospel means. It's reshaped everything for us. And he once again reminds us that, hey, this whole deal is because of what Christ has done. In verses 12 through 17, it's very much about what Jesus has done for me, Paul. Here's what he did for me. He saved me. He forgave me. I'm the foremost. I'm all this stuff. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks about Christ in a much more global way in and in, in a really epic way. He says, hey, there's really only one God out there who can save. And there's only one way to connect to that God, one mediator, in other words, one person who can bring you a sinner to God or bring anyone who's a sinner to God. And that's Christ Jesus, who was the man. And I like that, that he says he is the man. In other words, Jesus retained what Jesus gave up in coming to earth. He never really got it all back. Or maybe I should say what he took on by coming to earth. Maybe that's the way to say it. What he took on in becoming a man, he has retained that. He's kept a part of that with him. And I don't know what that means. I don't even want to try to explain it because I don't understand it. But I know it's a fact that he is with us and he's one of us. Um, and he gave himself for us to liberate us as a ransom. Somebody, uh, Brian asked about this, this statement, the testimony given at the proper time. I think, I don't know what you think about that. I think that reference to the testimony is the statement, the testimony that was given of God's love, God's desire to save in the cross. He connects it with the ransom. So the ransom would have been Jesus' death on the cross. And I think he's explaining what the ransom, what the death of Jesus meant. It was a testimony. What was it testifying of? Verse four, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what he wanted for Paul. That's what he wants for me. That's what he wants for everyone. That's what he wants for the world. And if we would understand God's vision in the gospel, it would reframe everything about the way we relate to God, the way we relate to others, the way we see ourselves in the world. It'll give us peace and joy. It'll give us something to anchor our lives to if we'd understand what God was doing through Jesus, what he's doing through us. All right. Sorry. I'm on a log there. I don't know what, uh, you probably got some more stuff you want to add on to all this or thoughts or observations or whatever.
1: No, nah, man, that's good. That's, that's helpful stuff. I, th- I think that is, uh, I think you're right about that. When we spoke about, uh, Christ giving himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time, God had a, God had a time in which he was going to make it clear. Um, that he is the savior of all that he is that he has come that he was going to come down to set right all the things that man had messed up through christ jesus that he was going to um pay the ransom price so that we could be rescued from the sin and the slavery uh that we that we fell into and that's exactly what uh what happened when jesus went to the cross god proved once and for all Just the depth of his love and uh, the extent to which he would go to rescue us and to reconcile us to him. And so if he's done that for us, um, then whatever opportunity, whatever ministry we may have, we need to take it seriously so that we can work uh, and pray and serve to bring about the salvation of all men whom God desires to be saved. Amen. Yeah. And you kind of touched on this. You kind of um,
0: pre, you were saying it right as Brian typed it in, the, the issue of the proper time, which you already explained. I'm just going to throw a couple of references out. The Gospel of John, for anybody who's wondering and wants to deep dive this a little more, there's a lot of references in the Gospel of John where Jesus would say, my hour has not yet come. There was this idea that there was a specific timing or circumstance that God had in mind. Galatians 4 and verse 4 so speaks about the fullness of time that God's plan to bring salvation the time had come. So if anybody wants to check that out some more, there's a couple more references to that. Yeah, good. Um, like I said, I imagine we'll probably reach back into this section whenever we pick up next time in chapter two, verse eight. You got anything else before we uh, wrap it up for today?
1: No, just to preview where we're headed from here, he's going to talk about, so you you mentioned how really in chapter two, we're starting to see the global impact of the gospel. And then as we talked about in our first study, which has been a while, so if you've forgotten, Um, in, in chapter three and verse, um, what was that chapter three and verse, uh, 15, maybe. Um, he said, he gives his reason for writing this letter, uh, 14 and 15. I'm writing these things to you, hoping you to come before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so what we're going to see in the next few, um, Sections is like more specifically for certain groups uh, of people in the church of God, in the household of God, how should they conduct themselves? And that's where we're going in the rest of chapter two and in chapter three. Um, So uh, thanks brother. Good stuff today. Uh, Really helpful stuff. And thanks everybody as
0: always uh, for jumping in with the great comments and good discussion and good questions and great thought provoking stuff. And I know sometimes people come back and end up catching these videos later and drop comments in. Uh, that's really cool really encouraging and, and we want that obviously this is better whenever we all are kind of engaging with each other pushing each other a little bit poking around in scripture trying to help each other understand it better that's what it's all about so we can understand the glorious gospel of the lord and be able to live it out in our lives so lord willing i think we're on next week right no problems there god willing all right so lord will we'll be back on next week and we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys soon thanks so much The aim of The Way BK is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ across Brooklyn and beyond. For more information or to contact us, please visit www.thewaybk.com.